0: Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tokajer of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshachinu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for your holy Shabbat, for this time you have given us, this opportunity you have given us to uh, experience your might and your power, to be able to interact as a community uh, in worship before you on the day that you have set aside for this purpose, to rest in your presence and to worship in your presence. Father, I pray that you impact our hearts and our lives today, that your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, continue to move. And Father, I pray that you speak through me today, that it be your heart and your words that are received, that nothing of me be involved except that which you have uh, uh, ordained specifically for this purpose. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen. Amen. This week we read Parsha Kite Uh it's one of the final parshot of Deuteronomy. We have a double Parsha next week and one more the, uh, the week after, and then we are done with the specific parsha of Deuteronomy read in synagogue because we have special parsha that's read for Yom Kippur in the Shabbat of Sukkot and so on and so forth. And then at the end of, uh, right after Sukkot on Shemeni'an Simchat Torah, we will roll the Torah scroll back to the Bereshit. We will begin Bereshit, Genesis, all over again. We'll read the final part of Ezod Habracha, the final part of Deuteronomy on Samchad Torah, and the beginning of uh, parsha Bereshit, the beginning of Genesis. Uh, and then that following Saturday, we will read Genesis uh, 1 as the beginning of our Torah cycle all over again. So we are moving through. Things are speeding up. Uh, I, I mean, it seems like, in, and I mean, Physics tells us that the reason things seem to go faster, the year goes by faster as you get older, is because each individual year takes up a smaller portion of your total life uh, span as it is. So one year old, uh, you know, a month doesn't quite seem like it goes by that fast. But when you're 40 years old, it's 140th. A year is 140th of your life and it seems like it goes faster. I think that that absolutely plays into it. It's all a matter of perspective. But I also think that as we move further along in biblical prophecy, particularly in time prophecies, we see things beginning to become a reality in our lives and in our day um, that things really are just speeding up. Um, as I watch more and more things that are happening. I just got a notification today of 60,000 Muslims from a country, I think it was, if memory serves, in North Africa, uh, migrating to another country, uh, trying to get away from uh, uh, this genocidal uh, war that's going on in their country. I mean, it's almost every day you look at the news or you look uh, 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 online or what have you. There's some sort of tragedy. There's some sort of war. I mean, we're hearing wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and all of these kinds of things that are happening all around us. And we can see as things are picking up and, and moving along. And so it's not just that our Torah cycle is going faster. It's not just that every year that we're alive is that much smaller of a percentage of our total lifespan that we experience. But it's that things I believe truly are speeding up. And I don't know about you, but I for one am longing for the day when the feet of my Messiah land on Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives and it splits in two. Uh, I'm longing for the day when we see Mashiach's return um, and, uh, and predicating that, I'm longing for the day when all Israel will proclaimed Baruch Hashem Adonai, ushering in the return of Messiah. Uh, so as we look at this Parsha and we recognize that we have flown through the cycle this year, I mean, it feels like just last week that we were reading about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, I mean, it's flown through. Uh, but as we do, I want you to, to keep in mind as we watch the world around us that things are literally speeding up. We're watching the soon return of Messiah, and, uh, and I'm excited to see it happen. Aside from that, just looking at the Parsha itself this week and diving into what is happening at this point in uh, in the calendar, uh, as we prepare for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the 10 days of awe, as we are moving through the month of Elul, which is the month of repentance, and uh, we're preparing our hearts and our lives for this great work of the Lord during this season, uh, we come to this Parsha Parsha Kittetze. What a lot of people don't realize is within Parsha Kittetze, I believe it's 74 Of the 613 commandments of the Torah are in this Parsha. That's a huge number to come from just a couple of short chapters. 74 of the 613 commandments are found in this Parsha alone. And if you read through it, it seems like it's just all over the place, right? We look at the very beginning and it's talking about when the Lord sends you to war, if you go to war and you wipe out a a village and there's this one chick that you think is beautiful that lives there and you want to take her home to be your wife, here's how you go about doing it. And we go, that's just weird. Like, that's just weird to think about. And then the next thing it says is, if you get bored with her and you're tired of her, you can't sell her as a slave. You have to let her go freely wherever she wants because you've humiliated her. That's the next step of weird. Uh, I mean, it just seems to, to kind of multiply from there. Uh, and we move through uh, a lot of this and. And I talk about this a lot. People like to look at the Torah in the modern world and in perspective of things that uh, are happening in the world, in perspective of the modern mentality, uh, uh, socio-political mentality. Uh, And they like to look at the, the, the Torah, the Old Testament, the Tanakh as a whole, and they like to go, well, see, that's just odd. Like, why in the world would anybody want to serve that God that sets these parameters and guidelines in place that are just so weird and and, you know, we, we read about, well, if you're going to have slaves, here's how you to treat them. If you're going to uh, take a wife from this village that you've just slaughtered, here's how you treat her. And if you're going to send somebody away, here's how you do. And if you've got a slave and uh, he gets married to somebody in your household, and this isn't from this parsha but you have this slave and he marries somebody else who's in your household as a slave and he do, it's time for him to go. His seven years are up and you got to free him. You can let him go, but his family stays behind. And if he decides he loves his family and loves you enough that he wants to stay, then you put a or uh, uh, you punch his ear, you know, put a punch in his ears and he then stays on as a permanent part of your household and so on. And we go, but that's just, that's just weird, it's odd, it's, slavery's not okay, slavery's not acceptable and, and so on and so forth. But what we're doing is looking at the scriptures, which were written at a specific point in time and they're telling us a narrative of things that happened at a specific point in time through the eyes of what we know today and what we experience today. And we can't do that. We can't understand what was written in the first century by merely looking at it in 21st century eyes. We have to first look at it in first century eyes and extrapolate to 21st century what what was meant in the first century means in the 21st century and how it applies and, and activates in our life today. But we like to look at things in reverse. We like to look at it from what we know and think we know now back to what it is to them. And that's the deal with this Parsha. But if we actually look through this Parsha, what we realize is the very definitive reality of love your neighbor as yourself, which is one of the two most important commandments Yeshua tells us, love your neighbor as yourself, the definitive reality of that command is found in action in this Parsha. As a matter of fact, the TLV titles a segment of this Parsha uh, uh, as love in action. And the reality is, is, as we look through this partial, we realize is that's exactly what it is. Do not let your, uh, your ox or your servants do work without giving them food and nourishment and providing for them. The worker is worth his wages. You've got to pay them what they're supposed to get. Uh, and uh, don't let the, you know, if the ox is in the ditch. You've got to help them get out and, and all this kind of stuff. It's basically you take care of other people. You don't let them suffer on their own, which is kind of apt when we just talked about raising money and and collecting goods to help those that are suffering in Texas right now after the hurricane. But it's about uh, the whole purpose to this Parsha and most of the Torah itself is love. And the idea is we are to share the love we receive from the Lord with others that we come into contact with. And even when we look at things like slavery and divorce and all of these kinds of things that seem atrocious in our 21st century mind, When we look at them with what the Lord actually intended from these words, we start to recognize that there's more to the picture. And we start to recognize that the Lord doesn't condone slavery. Instead, He gives us guidelines because He knows we're stupid enough to do it anyways. He gives us guidelines not to mess other people up in the midst of it. So if we look biblically and historically at uh, what we would consider slavery today in Israel's day, it wasn't. They were actually part of the family. They were part of the household. They ate with the rest of the household. They lived with the rest of the household. They were taken care of as rest of the household. Hence the reason why when the time is up, if your servant wants to leave, it says first if he loves you and wants to stay with you, and he loves his family and wants to stay with you, then here's how you go about doing that, Right? Who has ever read a story of American slavery and read about the slaves loving their masters so much that they just didn't want to leave when uh, slavery was abolished? It doesn't exist, right? Same thing if you go and you know, slavery is not dead, by the way. You can go to the Middle East countries and uh, Muslim countries and see slavery all over the place uh, and, and you know, sex, sex trade and all this stuff still going on. Nobody loves their master so much they want to stay, yet the Lord says, it's very well possible somebody's going to love you enough they want to stay. They aren't going to want to leave your household. They want to become a part of your family. Uh, and they do, and they, they stick it out. And the Lord gives us all these guidelines, not condoning various actions that seem wrong, but instead saying, look, I know humanity has this uh, perpe- uh, perpetual reality of just jacking things up. So I'm going to teach you how not to make it worse than it really is. And over time, I'm going to reveal to you, because it's a progressive revelation from Genesis to Revelation. Over time, I'm going to reveal to you that all of that stuff you think you have to do or you think is is common in the world around you is really not of me. And it's not of my character and nature that you've been created in. And so he's gonna slowly start to weed those things out of our lives. And all that is a part of it. And so as we look through this Parsha, most of it's dealing with specifically that. How do we show love to each other? Even in scenarios that in the 21st century seem wrong. How do we show love to one another? How do we care for one another? How do we protect one another? Even humane treatment of animals. Even humane treatment of animals and so on, how do we care for and love one another? And what I really want to hone in on this morning is looking at uh, the reality of Mashiach Yeshua in the Parsha, uh, and beyond that, the reality of, and, and in Messianic Judaism, we, we almost innately like to pick on replacement theology. You yeah, know, replacement theology is this concept that, that uh, the, the first century when Messiah died on the, on the stake and was buried, resurrected, ascended to heaven, the spirit was poured out, that that was the marker that God was done with Israel and the Jewish people, and he had nothing to do with it anymore. He divorced them, he kicked them out. And all of the blessings and promises of Israel have now been shifted over to the Gentile church, and if some Jews want to get in on it, it's okay, but they've got to leave Judaism to do it. But scripturally, we see that's just not the case. And we like to pick on replacement theology a lot, right? I mean, because really, I mean, it's a problem. It's pervasive in the body of Messiah, and, and that's a problem. It's a problem for me. I hate hearing about it. Uh, but we like to pick on it, and we, we don't quite so often pick on the same issues in Judaism. And so today is, is that day that we've been building up to for several weeks now when I talk about a specific passage of Isaiah being cut out of the seven messages of consolation, the seven messages of Isaiah from Tishbab to uh, Rosh Hashanah. As we look at that period of time, I talk about, I've talked for the last several weeks about this passage from Isaiah being kind of conveniently clipped out of these parshot that are read during this time period, not taken away from the scriptures, just not read uh, when they seemingly should be. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want to put some stuff in perspective real quick before we jump to Isaiah. It says, suppose a man is a stubborn and rebellious son who does not listen to the voice of his father or mother. They discipline him, but he does not listen to him. Then his father and mother are to grab hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, of his city, to the gate of this place. They will say to the elders of the city, the son of, uh, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He does not listen to our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city are to stone him with stones to death, so you will purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. Now, first and foremost, we never read about this actually happening in Israel, ever. It's nowhere in in scripture. First and foremost, like I've said before, I think it's truly because who wants to be that parent? You know, when we really get to this, what it's saying is is the parent has to, and this isn't like a little kid. You're not going to have a five-year-old who's a drunkard, right? Uh, I hope not but you're not going to have a five-year-old that's a drunkard. So clearly this is speaking of adult children. And it says when your son has gotten so bad and becomes so inundated with the world around you that there's just no hope left for him, then you have to rid him from the community so the rest of the community isn't destroyed by his sins. And, And what parent is ever going to want to say there is no hope left for my kid, right? Nobody. Nobody's ever going to want to say there's no hope left for my kid, so here, off him and be done with it. Nobody's ever going to want to say that. I actually want to uh, pose to you that I believe the Lord's actually honing in on something a little more important here than whether or not our children are miserable, right? Or miserable human beings, not just them miserable, but making everybody else miserable. Uh, I want want to hone in on something I think the Lord's saying that's a little deeper than that and relates and brings us into what we're looking at in Isaiah this week. Um, The reality is I think what the Lord is saying here is this is actually an image, uh, a, a picture, if you would, of us as his creation, right? As his creation, we're his children. Throughout scripture, one of the prominent relationship images that we have of creation and the creator is father and children. When Yeshua was asked, how do we pray? His response was, you begin by saying, our father, right? Over and over again, this concept of him being our father is a viable reality. He tells us, Yeshua says, approach the the father with the heart of a child, how does a child approach the father with joy, with gladness, with excitement, with exuberation, with love, with, with fervor for them, with honor and respect and, uh, and so on. The reality is this, this passage about the, the wayward son is about you and I. Because this is how we treat our Heavenly Father. And just like the parent is never going to want to say, there's no hope left for my child, our Creator has spent 6,000 years saying, there's still hope there's still hope. There's still hope. Not only is there still hope, but I'm going to provide that hope. And the next thing we read about is verse 22. It says, suppose a man is guilty of a sin with a death sentence, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body is not to remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must certainly bury him, with the, same, bury him the same day, for anyone hanged is cur- a curse of God. You must not defile your land that Adonai your God is giving you as an inheritance. <clears throat> We look at this and we see, well, that seems weird. It seems out of place, right? It doesn't seem, I mean, where else have we read about people being hung as a, a method of capital punishment in the Torah? Most of the rest of the Torah, it talks about stoning them, right? Uh, kicking them out in the community and so on and so forth. And here's this random passage and he says, anyone hung on a tree is cursed, right? And we look at Yeshua and we look at the way he died and we look at the fact that he was hung on a tree, The stake, the cross, was made from wood. It was a tree that he was hung on. And the reason Israel cried out, crucify him, crucify him, wasn't because it was their preferred method of punishment. Israel didn't like it. It was actually the most brutal form of punishment Rome used. It was saved for the worst of the worst of the worst. And it was designed that it was hours upon hours upon hours of sheer torture. And you couldn't die until they broke your legs so that you couldn't breathe anymore because you would have to push up with your legs to take in breath because of the way you're dangling, your chest is constricted and you can't breathe and you had to push up against the nails in order to catch breath. And as soon as you inhale, you drop back down again on these nails over and over and over again for hours on end. And human nature, the way we're designed, it is almost impossible for us to suffocate ourselves. Right? Try and hold your breath until you pass out. It doesn't work. Innately, you're going to breathe in. That's why people drown because they're underwater and they try to hold their breath as long as they can. And innately, at some point, we try to gulp in air. right? So you're, going, you're not going to just dangle there and say, well, I'm just not going to move until I'm dead, until so I'm not humiliated anymore. Your body's going to naturally keep doing this process. And eventually, after hours on end of watching this, the Roman soldiers would come by and break the legs so that they could no longer push up and they would suffocate to death on the cross. It's brutal. It's humiliating. It is disgusting. It is painful. And it's the way that Messiah was slaughtered. Israel didn't cry crucify Him because that was their preferred method of seeing people die. They cried crucify Him because they knew that Deuteronomy 21 22 says, anyone hung on a tree is cursed. And they wanted to see Yeshua cursed. They wanted to see Him cursed and never spoken of again. The reality is, is it was actually God's intention for Him to hang on that stake. Why? Because He was spotless. He was sinless. In order for him to take our sins on, he had to take on a curse upon himself that he wasn't responsible for. With sin comes the curse of death. He didn't have that curse of death because he was spotless. He had to take our sins on, and that didn't mean him going about doing every sin that was possible. It meant him literally putting his life in a position where he became cursed to take our sins on. So although it was God's plan for it to play out that way, Israel had an intention behind it too. They wanted to see Him cursed. They wanted to see these words fulfilled. But then we realize that Yeshua came back from the grave, that He resurrected from the grave. He came back to restore life anew in Him and to give life eternal in the Lord and in heaven. As we look at all this, we realize that He took what was meant to be a curse and He flipped it around for a blessing for all, Right? And we go to Isaiah, go to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Remember I said that last week we read uh, through 51, verse 12, and this week's traditional Parsha begins at 54, verse 1, and it's 54, 1 through 10 is the traditional Parsha, Haftarah Parsha. For this for this Shabbat. But if we look at it, 52.12 is where last week's ends. Fifty four ten one is where this week's begins. That just seems like a really weird place to cut things off, right? Especially when you're talking about restoration and you're talking about, you know, this whole seven messages of consolation of the Lord saying, look, I'm going to redeem you, restore you, and renew you and bring you back into the blessings and promises that were always intended to be yours. And we cut out this passage out of Isaiah 52.13 through 53.13, 53.12. <clears throat> what is the, the suffering servant or the suffering lamb passage of isaiah and judaism cuts it out and, and listen the reason judaism cuts it out is the same reason that the church wants to get rid of the jewish people and push them out of the way i don't mean like holocaust kind of get rid of them i mean just get them out of the picture in terms of salvation and redemption you know the the, the church wants the jewish messiah but they don't want the jewish self or the jewish people israel wants the, the jewish people wants the jewish messiah but they don't want yeshua or any of the followers of yeshua because they don't recognize that he is Messiah. And since they don't recognize that he's Messiah, they've still got blinders over their eyes. They've still to open their eyes to the truth of the words that we read every single week, not just in the scriptures, but in our own liturgy. Every single week, their eyes are not open to the reality of what we're saying and what we're doing on a weekly basis, a daily basis, an hourly basis. They read things like Isaiah 52, and it becomes a problem because... It speaks literally and verbatim to the way Yeshua's sacrifice was carried out. You can't read this and not think of the historical display of who Yeshua was and what happened when he, was died, when he was killed. It's just impossible. As a matter of fact, within traditional Judaism today, you are not allowed to read Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through Isaiah 53 without your rabbi standing over you to tell you what it really means, lest you find out what it really means. Israel, the Jewish people, have always looked at Isaiah 52 and 53 and seen it as speaking of an individual suffering on behalf of the nation up until about 500 to 1,000 years ago when we began to change the interpretation of it to remove Yeshua from the potential picture. And we began to change the interpretation of it to where now we say, no, Israel, the people, the nation, is the suffering servant, suffering on behalf of the people. Because if we say the nation is suffering, then we're not looking for a specific individual and we can return back to the mindset of the victorious king being the first Mashiach, being the Messiah that comes. and We don't have to worry about that suffering servant who has to come first. But it completely undoes the entire narrative, especially when we look at Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection. We realize that this is speaking verbatim, word for word, of the way he died. Let's go to it. Isaiah fifty-two thirteen says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled at you. His appearance was disfigured more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for what had done, had not been told Then they will see, and what they had not heard they will perceive. Who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that he should look at him, nor beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our pains. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, struck by God and afflicted. But He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement for our shalom, our peace, was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to His own way. So Adonai has laid him on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shearers, is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Because of oppression and judgment, he was taken away as for his generation who considered. For he was cut off from the land of the living for transgression of my people. They, the stroke was theirs. His grave was given with the wicked and by a rich man in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased Adonai to bruise him. He caused him to suffer. If he makes his soul a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, which is you and I, followers of Messiah Yeshua, those bought by the blood of the Lamb. He will prolong his days, and the will of Adonai will succeed by his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Yeshua took on what was rightfully ours. The punishment, the curse of sin is death. He took on a literal curse being hung on the stake. This is God in flesh. He could have uh, avoided that. Right? I mean, for three years, every time they came to kill him, he miraculously vanished. Right? I don't mean like, you know, a samurai you know, through dust and disappeared or a ninja or whatever. But I mean, he literally just left and nobody cared or noticed. Right? Kind of like Paul. They were coming to kill Paul and he realized it was Sadducees and Pharisees coming for him and he had this great plan. <laughs> Bring up the resurrection. That'll get them arguing between themselves. They'll forget about me. I can leave. Well, Yeshua's in similar situations. They're coming to kill him. And every single time they come to kill him, He's able to just walk away like nothing ever happened except for the last time. And this time, he just let them have at it. Let them take them. Let them do what they wanted to do. Why? Because he recognizes that you and I are wayward children. He recognizes his love for us as our father. And he recognizes that he desires our love in return. He recognizes that you and I are not without hope. He recognizes that no matter what we do, that is our Father, He is always going to pray and hold out hope for us. When I talk about my children, I look at my children, no matter what they do, wrong or right, I am constantly praying for them to be restored, to be renewed, to, be, uh, to, to walk in Messiah's strength and love and salvation. I'm constantly praying. It doesn't matter how bad their mistake is. My desire is to see them renewed and restored. And I don't care what they do in their life. I don't care how far off the the right path they go, and I pray they don't. But I don't care how far they go. I will never long to see them die instead of returning. I will always long for them to return to the Lord no matter what. And the reality is is that is what the Lord desires for you and I, is that we return. And he recognized that as long as there wasn't a legitimate means for that return, we could never do it. Sacrifices did nothing for us. Earthly, physical sacrifices in the temple, we would bring those sacrifices. Matter of fact, many of us are still guilty of doing this today. We'll come to worship and we'll do the same thing. We would bring these sacrifices to the temple. <clears throat> we would leave, uh, you know, just throwing a, I'm not saying this is what you or I do, but just throwing it out there. We would leave the temple prostitute to bring our bull to the temple, uh, to, to the temple in Jerusalem, make our sacrifice, and go back to the temple prostitute. Many of us do the same thing week in and week out. We fall prey to temptation of the enemy. We fall prey to sin. And we go to services and we worship and we give our heart and we do all of this stuff. And then the next day we're right back where we started. We don't fully turn back around. Because as long as we're trying to do it on our own, it's never going to matter. And bringing physical sacrifices with us, trying to do it on our own, and the Lord knew that. And that's why it was not His true intention. Just like slaughtering our wayward children was not His true intention. His true intention was always for us to recognize that salvation is only found in Him. And that all of those other things were His way of showing us grace until we could see the true revelation of grace in Messiah. So he became our suffering servant. He became the lamb that was sacrificed on that stake, that was hung on that tree. He took on that curse upon himself and he resurrected a new life so that you and I could find restoration and new life in him. So that we could be restored to the children that he intended us to be. So that we could be restored to our creator as the creation he intended us to be. Because his desire is not for us to be wayward and be cast off as though there's no hope left for us because for those who failed to accept messiah as salvation it's what's awaiting for the rest of eternity it's a separation from the heavenly father i don't care what you think about the literal reality of heaven and hell i believe in a literal reality of heaven and hell i believe that hell is a lake of fire just like scripture says i believe it is a literal description but at the same time it doesn't matter what i believe about that Because what is most important in my eyes, and I think the thing that scares me the most about the reality of heaven and hell, is heaven is eternal presence in the Father. And hell is an eternal separation from the Father. I don't care what that separation looks like. I don't care if it's burning. I don't care if it's non existence. I don't care what it is. What I do care about is it's separation from the Father. And I recognize that's not what we were created for. And the Lord is telling us every single day, hope is not lost for you. Hope is not lost for you. My salvation has been given. All you have to do is claim it. All you have to do is walk in it, live in it, breathe in it, eat in it, experience it, love it. We go forward to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the deeds of Torah are under a curse. The scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not keep doing everything written in the scroll of the Torah. Our salvation doesn't come, and this is what it's saying, our salvation doesn't come from how well we avoid ham sandwiches. <clears throat> it doesn't come from how much or how little work we do or don't do on Shabbat. It doesn't come from how well we fast on Yom Kippur. It doesn't come from how well we take days off for the high holy days. It doesn't come from us eating matzah, and maror and Pesach. These are all things that are commanded in Scripture. It doesn't come from any of that. Our salvation singularly and only comes from the grace provided in Messiah Yeshua. Our ability to do any of the rest of that is only a reality in Messiah. If it weren't, we wouldn't have needed the sacrifices of the temple. We would have done it perfectly already. Our ability to honor any of that can only be truly attained in Messiah. It is clear that no one is set right before uh, God by Torah, for the righteous shall, be, shall live by emunah, or faith. The righteous, some translations say the righteous shall live by faith alone. However, Torah is not based on trust and faithfulness. On the contrary, <clears throat> the one who does these things shall live by them. Verse 13, Messiah liberated us from Torah's curse. Notice he doesn't liberate us from Torah he doesn't liberate us from his word. He liberates us from Torah's curse. And what is Torah's curse? Death, right? The curse of breaking the Torah, the curse of sin, is death. James says that the definition of sin is transgression of the law. He says, Messiah liberate us from Torah's curse, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Yeshua hung on the tree to take on the curse that was rightfully ours so that you and I wouldn't have to. In in order that through Messiah Yeshua the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so we might receive the promise of the Ruach through trusting faith. Messiah came salvation to the Jew first and also or likewise to the nations. He came to provide salvation that the nations could be grafted into the root and the fatness of the olive tree. He came that both Jew and Gentile alike who are all descendants from Adam and Eve who are all descendants from Noah. Remember the separation, if you will, the distinction of Jew and Gentile didn't begin till Abraham, right? We're all from Noah and Adam. So salvation wasn't just to the Jews. Abraham, the promise was that through Abraham, the entire world would be blessed, not just the Jewish people. And so just in the same way that we like to beat up and mess anti-Judaism or replacement theology, we have to be equally fair on the ways that Judaism has distinctly separated itself from Messiah also and tried to hide Messiah from the Jewish people, has tried to hide Yeshua from the Jewish people. If we just cut out this suffering servant, they'll never figure it out. Look, you read through verse 12 on chapter 52, you're going to want to move to 13. Hence the reason why your rabbi's got to be there to tell you what it really means because nobody I don't know of a single person who has never heard of the death burial resurrection of messiah whether or not they believe it's a whole other story and whether or not it was ever told to him in a way where it was intended for them to believe it's a whole other story as far as I can tell pretty much everybody alive has at one point or another at least heard about yeshua being whipped about yeshua's beard being ripped out about him being unrecognizable as a human about him being hung on the the stake, nails driven through his wrists and his feet. About the pain and the anguish and the the crown of thorns and all of this that went on. Most everybody has heard about his resurrection, whether or not they believe it, they've heard the, the tell, they've heard the narrative at the very least. The reality is, is it's there for all. It is there for all, not just the Jewish people not just the Gentile church. It is there for all. And God's desire isn't that there be Messianic Judaism and there be the Southern Baptist Convention and there be the Assemblies of God and there be the, the, the Presbyterian, the, the Presbyterian USA or uh, whatever the new one's called or the Episcopals or the Anglicans or non-denominationals or UPC or uh, uh, Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or any of that. His desire is for there to be the people of God. When we start separating ourselves out, it's human flesh. It's not God. He came and gave His life. He came a little lower than the angels and took on human form and gave His life that you and I, Jew and Gentile, the whole world alike, could be unified as one, as one new man. And just as a lot of the church has tried to get rid of the Jewish people in the picture, and a lot of the Jewish world has tried to get rid of the church and, and Yeshua out of the picture, the reality is is Yeshua came for both, Jew and Gentile alike. And he grafted both natural and unnatural branches into the root and the fatness of the olive tree, which is Israel. He didn't graft us into something new. He didn't go back to the form and remold us and remake us into something. He put together what he had already intended. We separate ourselves out. But he gave his life so that you and I, as wayward children, could find salvation, be renewed and restored, and be brought back to being his children again, which is what he created us to be in the first place. And his desire is is that we stop making sacrifice with our mouth. That we stop giving these physical uh, actions as though it makes any difference. But that every breath that we take, every word that we speak, every moment that we're awake, every thought we have, every single inclination of our very existence will be fully and wholly devoted and dedicated to him. I was reading as I was preparing for the message this morning, and I'll say this in closing. As I was preparing for the message for today, um, I was reading uh, in uh, some uh, Jewish sources (coughs) about the Parsha, and one of the things mentioned later on in this Parsha is the tzitziot uh, that we read about in Numbers 15, the the tassels that we wear. Um, And uh, it's interesting because there's this narrative in the Talmud that speaks about the tzitziot and and, uh, the the reason we wear them. In Numbers 15, it says we wear them so that we look down upon them we'll remember to keep the commandments, right? What they're there for? As a matter of fact, the way that I tie mine is in a traditional way that represents the numerical value six thirteen, which is equal to six hundred thirteen commandments of the Torah. So when we look down upon them, we remember to keep His commandments. Um, and so as we look at it, there's this this narrative in the Talmud that says that there was this, this Jewish guy who was so pious and intentional on in wearing his seats and and having them just right and 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 all of this, and he put all this effort and so on and so forth, so much so. The way this story plays out so much so that he heard this tell about this prostitute that was the most beautiful woman that ever lived in this neighboring country, and he sent her four hundred pieces of gold that he could hire her to come and have sex with her and so she goes and prepares this whole place for him and, and he packs up and he heads off to wherever it is she lives and, and he gets to her house and she brings him in and and she's up on uh, one of the beds that she's prepared for him, completely naked. And he's climbing up the steps onto the bed to get up there with her. And he's really excited. And as he's climbing up the bed and trying to throw his clothes off, he gets slapped in the face by his seat seat. And he suddenly remembers the Torah and he climbs back down and he's down on the ground and she comes down and goes, tell me what the flaw was you saw that made you lose interest. And he goes, oh no, it's nothing about you. He goes, it's the seat seat. It reminded me of the word of God. You know, you were wearing them before you got there, right? You were wearing them before you sent her the money. Why is it all of a sudden that they matter? Right? And then the narrative goes on to say that she then told him, well, if that's the only issue that I want to know about your God, tell me the town you came from and the rabbi you study under and I want to go and convert to Judaism under him. And so she goes back and tells him the story and he lets her convert to Judaism. They get married and live happily ever after and whatever. But I'm thinking about this and I'm going, you know, this is a perfect picture of us. Perfect picture of humanity. A perfect picture of the redeemed. This is how we live our lives. We preach the gospel. We live the gospel. We're all about the gospel. We read the word and as soon as we leave the Bible, we're off doing whatever and forgetting about God and buried deep in the world around us. And then we come back again. And it's like we get slapped at, Oh yeah, I'm supposed to live this other way, right? And it's this constant process. But the reality is, is these seats seat that I wear... The talit that we wear in service is there to remind us of his word. But his word should always be before us. Always. Not just when we're reading it. Always. <clears throat> I wear my seat out. I know people that tuck them in and that's all cool. But I wear mine out all the time because the commandment says, when you look down upon them, you'll remember to keep the commandment. You'll remember the commandments. Well, if the only time I can see them is when I'm in the bathroom, it's not really doing me a lot of good, is it? So I wear them out all the time. And you recognize they're there. I mean, I know they're there. I'm constantly pulling at them and making sure they're in the right place and, and, and whatever. But the reality is, is that they're, they're there to remind of us word, but they're not there to solely be the reminder. And when we find ourselves in those positions that that's what reminds us, or we find ourselves in a position where a song comes on on the radio and all of a sudden we go, oh, crap, I shouldn't be here. I remember now what I'm supposed to be. You know, then we're not living right. Somehow, even though we've been redeemed, even though we found grace, somehow we found ourselves back on that wayward track. And yet, even in that scenario, the Lord's saying, I've still got hope for you. I've still got hope for you. I can still re- fix this. I can still restore this. Just come back to me. <clears throat> Let me do the work. It's not about you and your sacrifices and all of this. It's about what I can do for you. Just come back to me. The reason we never see a wayward child is stoned in the Torah or throughout the rest of the scriptures it's because it was never God's intention to actually see it play out it was a wake up call to us that's why we read something similar in the story of the uh, prodigal son it's about hope it's hope they come back and the Lord still holds out hope for you and I and our family and our friends and everyone we come into contact with I hold out hope that my Jewish family comes to know Mashiach Yeshua I hold out hope for the day when all Israel will proclaim blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord that they will find the truth of his salvation. Not just because I desire to see his feet land on the Mount of Olives. I do. I want to see that happen soon. It'd be awesome. Fix a lot of the mess we see around us. But but the reality is, is I desire to see it as well as for all men, not just Israel. Because I desire to see those added to his kingdom daily that are being saved as the end of Acts 2 says those added daily that are being saved and it takes you and I recognizing that we aren't really the way we're child anymore so we need to get back on the track of grace and mercy and renewal and restoration and walk faithfully in his word because we're redeemed from the curse we're saved from the curse of the law but we're not redeemed from actually honoring God's word honoring God's word is a part of walking out salvation it's got nothing to do with earning it but obedience is a part of being a child, right? Who has children? Who has rules for their children? Who never actually expected their children to honor those rules? None of you. You all expect your children to honor those rules. So why do we not think the same of our Heavenly Father? <clears throat> it's got nothing to do with salvation. I'm not going to kill my kid because he doesn't honor my, my rules. It's just not how it's going to work. Sometimes I kind of want to maybe, but I'm not going to. It's not going to happen. And my desire is not there to do so. In the same way, the Lord doesn't want to kill us because we're not doing it, but he does still want us to do it. He still wants us to honor it. So although how well we honor Shabbat or eat matzah and merorah and Pesach and uh, how well we keep kosher and whatever doesn't affect our salvation at all, it does in fact enhance our relationship as sons and daughters of the King Most High. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We thank you for being a gracious God who, Father, has just laid out this plan of salvation from Genesis through Revelation that if we just open our eyes, it's impossible to miss. Father, if we just look at the Scriptures for what they were intended to be, which was a path, a map taking us to Yeshua. Father, if we can live our lives in a way that others see that path, that map that points directly to Yeshua. Father, our hope is to be restored and renewed day in and day out, as Paul said, dying daily and being resurrected in new life daily in you, Lord. That we not return to being wayward children, but that we walk faithfully in your midst for the good and the glory of your kingdom, that others may see your light in our lives and come to know your salvation. Father, I thank you. For sending Messiah Yeshua to hang on that stake and take on that curse that we could be freed from the law the curse of the law that we could be refreed from the death eternally that is truly and rightly ours but that we could be restored to what you created us to be in the first place which are sons and daughters of our heavenly father heirs of your kingdom Lord I worship you, Lord. I thank you for being gracious and merciful to us. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.